0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Life Talk Podcast, sponsored by Life Culture Canada. I'm your host, Susan Penner. In today's episode, Jamie Penner is here to talk about what matters in the end. We will be discussing why thinking about the end of our lives is important, what are some things to consider if we ever receive a difficult diagnosis, and how we can support those living with illness and their family caregivers. Jamie is an expert in palliative and end-of-life care and is particularly passionate about supporting family caregivers. Jamie thanks so much for being here. Before we get started, I want to let people know that we are not related in spite of having the same surname and in spite of our devastatingly good looks. But we do actually go way way back having first gotten to know each other in high school. I'm always so excited to talk to friends and hear about the
1: incredible things they are doing. Thanks Susan. I'm happy to be here and uh, we do go way back, don't we? It's hard to believe that high school is what five or six years ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah I wish. <laughs>
0: Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your area of
1: expertise and what you are passionate about? Sure. So I'm a nurse, and I began my career at the Health Sciences Centre in a surgical oncology unit. Uh, From there, I uh, moved into a clinical nurse specialist role at Cancer Care Manitoba. And in these roles is where I really came to understand the impact that living with a serious illness can have on all aspects of a person's life. Um, And I really came to appreciate the very important role that family caregivers play in supporting people who are living with a serious illness. So I'm currently uh, working as an assistant professor at the College of Nursing uh, at the University of Manitoba. I am teaching an undergraduate course in palliative care and an interdisciplinary course in family caregiving across the lifespan. And my program of research is really focused on working with family caregivers to improve the caregiving experience and help promote their own health and well-being. So that's me in a nutshell. I know you've had a tremendous impact on me in
0: terms of thinking about these issues because we've known each other for years now. And I would say maybe even planted a, a seed for me when it comes to learning about a caregiving and also end-of-life issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is related to that and it's incredibly important. I was trying to frame it in a way that people wouldn't tune out when they realize we're talking about dying because it seems that unless someone is actually dying, they don't want to talk or think about it. Understandably, but yet unfortunately, I would say. But I found that the more I know about dying and illness, the more peace I have about it, the less fear, the better quality of life I have now, and the better perspective I have. I would say the books Being Mortal and When Breath Becomes Air really rocked my world and got me thinking about uh, end of life more. So the fact is, we are all going to die. Why is this fact something we talk so little about? Has it always been this way? Is this specific to our culture? Can you maybe um, discuss some of those types of things now?
1: Sure. So yeah, it is true. We, we are all going to die. Um, but this is certainly something that most people don't like to to think about or talk about. Um, Being immersed in this area of work and being somebody who is comfortable with talking about death and dying, um, I've learned really not to lead with this when engaging with people in social (laughs) situations. Uh, But just like anything in life, we tend to avoid engaging uh, in things that we don't like um, or that are uncomfortable for us. So there's many examples of this in our everyday lives. You know, people who are afraid of heights are not probably going to uh, climb a ladder, (laughs) readily, right? Uh, People who are maybe more introverted will avoid uh, large social settings. People who um, are not experienced or comfortable with technology might avoid avoid engaging with new technologies, that type of thing. Um, And oftentimes there's an element of fear involved in in our avoidance. So fear of of failure, fear of pain, uh, fear of the unknown. Um, and death and dying are really no different. So as humans, we have this innate uh, will to live. And most people don't want to die. And we don't want those we love to die. Um, our lives are what we know and what we're comfortable with. Um, so we don't want to leave here and we don't want to leave this, um, this world we know and those that we love. And there might be a fear about what the process of dying is like or what comes next, the fear of uncertainty about what happens after um, death. And I found that even for those who are uh, grounded in a strong religious faith, the very nature of faith is being assured of of uh, something that we're hoping for, but we ha- have not seen, right? And so the very nature of faith is, is um, sorry, so even though there's we have this confidence um, in heaven or in afterlife, there's still this element of uncertainty about it and exactly about what that will be like because we haven't seen it yet. So that can be uncomfortable for many people. Um, so just like anything else that makes us uncomfortable, uh, we tend to avoid thinking and talking about it. So we can't rationally deny that we will die, but we, we tend to think about it as something that will happen to somebody else or to other people. Um, I, I think this is a way of probably protecting ourselves from being vulnerable. Um, or engaging with that tension between our desire to live and the reality of our mortality. So because we live in a death-denying uh, society, we, even if we would like to talk about our own death or talk about death and dying, we will often avoid discussing it because we feel like maybe it will be unsettling to other people. And uh, you asked the question about, you know, is this just in our culture? There are some cultures where it is quite taboo to talk about death and dying. Um, in Western culture, it's not necessarily taboo to talk about it, but more so something that as a society, we haven't learned to engage in, in a very meaningful way. Um, you know, death and dying are a natural part of life. That's, that's a fact, much like being born. But um, because it's a part of life that many of us don't like or look forward to, we work hard to avoid thinking about it, let alone um, engaging in conversations about it. So we do have some work to do to normalize talking about death and dying um, in our families, in in our social circles, in our churches, and in the communities that we live in.
0: In a couple of books I've read on the subject, um, the authors have said that traditionally people would die at home. Um, because now we have health care. People are dying in hospitals, dying in care homes, so that, um, I guess, seeing people die and being near them when they die, that, that has changed. So part of the challenge is that we don't actually observe it and it's, and it's somewhere else. It's in the hospital, it's mm-hmm. in the care home. Uh, would you agree that that contributes to kind of our, I guess, disassociation, as it
1: were, with dying? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been this trend, like you said, moving away from um, care of people who are sick or dying at home and to really medicalizing it and, and making that sort of happen in institutions. So death and dying is sort of tucked away in these discrete places where it almost facilitates our ability to avoid that. Right. And so if if uh, we're not experiencing it in our day-to-day or in the context with which we're living and working and playing, um, that means we're, we, we, we're not gaining experience with it. And if we don't have experience with it, we don't have confidence with it, we're uncomfortable with it, we will continue to avoid it.
0: Yeah, the unknown is scary. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned faith, in terms of faith, faith playing a role in end-of-life issues and in dying. And what I've noticed, it seems that the more our society turns to secular humanistic worldview, the more it has trouble accepting suffering. We want to maximize pleasure. If this is all there is and there's no afterlife, let's just go for it. And when we die, it doesn't matter. There's nothing after this anyways. Um, Yet suffering can be a profound experience. A woman I know used to work at a hospice, and she said those last three weeks of life can be just some of those beautiful, profound, experiences in terms of family reconciling and she said they're beautiful and so she would say we're missing out when we try and avoid avoid you know these things and obviously no one wants to suffer having said that how do our efforts to avoid suffering negatively affect
1: us yeah I mean I think it's okay to not want to suffer I mean even in palliative and end-of-life care our goal really is to alleviate suffering and help people live well right? But in order to do that, we need to talk about um, the tough stuff in life. We need to talk about, excuse me, what living well means to us and what dying well would mean for us as well. And I think if we continue to resist and avoid these conversations about how we would want to live if we were diagnosed with a serious illness or what a good death would mean to us, it really leaves us uh, unprepared to make some of those decisions that we're confronted with when that time comes. Um, and it keeps us from being meaningfully connected to those that are around us and walking alongside us when we're going through some of the most vulnerable times in our lives. Um, It also leaves our families unprepared. You know, oftentimes our families are with us when we are making those tough decisions, and if we haven't had those conversations... It leaves them very unprepared to know how to best support us. And if we find ourselves in a situation where we can't make decisions for ourselves and it's up to our family to make those decisions for us, that's a tremendous amount of stress and pressure on them. Um, if we haven't talked about what matters to us, if we haven't talked about you know what it is that we would be willing to accept or not, um, or what... Um, the way in which we want to live out the last days of our lives and or what a good death would look like for us. So the irony is that by avoiding talking about death and dying and preparing for it, we, uh, we really set ourselves up for more suffering than is necessary, right? And so by simply learning to get comfortable with having these conversations and engaging in these difficult talks, um, we can lessen the suffering when the time comes and when we're faced with these difficult situations.
0: This leads well into a discussion I would like to have about disproportionate medical intervention. Uh, One of the disadvantages of waiting till diagnosis before thinking or talking about issues of mortality and suffering is that when a diagnosis comes, people are unprepared to make really important decisions about their care, so they can tend to make decisions for disproportionate medical intervention. So for example, um, if you look at cancer, Quality or quantity of life would be, would be a good question. Aggressive chemotherapy or aggressive treatment may extend your life by two months, but what quality of life is that extra two months? Um, so just could you talk a little bit about disproportionate medical intervention?
1: Sure. So we consider care to be uh, disproportionate when the intervention or the action that's being taken is uh, perceived as either too much or sometimes too little. Uh, in relation to the prognosis. So in the context of serious illness, we often see disproportionate care um, when we're initiating and uh, prolonging too much medical intervention um, in an effort to keep someone alive. So as you said, there's many factors that can contribute to this. One of the biggest ones is that as healthcare providers, uh, we really are trained uh, to focus on a curative approach to care. So you know, our, our training involves diagnose the problem, learn how to fix the problem, right? And and our focus really is um, is on curing. And in many ways, we're trained to have a very narrow definition of um, of what successful care means. So we define success as being able to save somebody's life or prolong their life. And because of this, we often see that treatments that are being offered that might be um, extremely invasive or burdensome to, um, to people simply because it aligns with that aim of prolonging someone's life. So for an individual who's diagnosed with a serious illness, um, like I talked about earlier, their instinctual reaction is also one of wanting to live, right? Or for families who are needing to make decisions for a loved one, we often see them struggling and wanting to try anything um, and everything to keep their fami- family member alive so um, if healthcare professionals who are focused on um, this curative approach are offering treatments that might result in more time, people really want to cling to that and pursue these interventions um, in hopes of getting more time. And so oftentimes, like you said, the focus is largely on quantity of life. We're getting as much sort of time as we can. Unfortunately, what's often missing is an honest discussion about you know, what or a consideration of what that time will will look like Um, and or what the individual's quality of life will be if we do pursue these treatments or interventions that that might prolong their life. So I think it would be very beneficial if we as healthcare providers could redefine what we see as successful. Um, We know that many illnesses simply cannot be cured. So defining success as saving somebody's, life then becomes futile right and often leads to these extreme measures or this disproportionate care that we're talking about but what if success was seen as helping uh, someone live well when they're living with a serious illness or what if success was seen as helping uh, people die well um, when they're living with a serious illness that cannot realistically be cured Right? And what if we became comfortable with walking alongside people in these difficult uh, parts of the journey and having honest conversations? You know, if we started to define that as successful care, I think um, it would go a long way in improving people's quality of life and, and having sort of a different, uh, different outcomes that we're focused on. Um, and likewise, often we ourselves haven't thought about what qual- quality of life means to us, right, or what would matter to us in the end. Because we spend most of our lives avoiding talking about and planning for death and dying, when the time comes, there's there's almost this sense of panic or desperation um, to try to reconcile that tension that I was talking about between our innate will to live and the reality of our mortality. So, um, you know, we really end up being unprepared to make some of these really important decisions that will influence how we live and how we die when we get to that part of the journey.
0: Now, one thing you have talked to me about is palliative care and how we need to. Okay, I'm not sure if I'd say redefine palliative care or define it, or define it properly. Maybe so. People traditionally view palliative care is like end of life care, more like hospice care, right at the end. Now people are put on palliative. But you've spoken to me about what palliative care should actually look like. Um, I know the stats say something like only 30% of Canadians have proper palliative care. And now I'm not even sure if that means that's just the end of life piece, or if that means the way you would define it. So maybe tell us how you think palliative care should be defined. And uh, yeah, and it's different from what we know it to be now. So I just wanted you know, people to hear what your thoughts on that, because it makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah, so in its truest form, I mean, palliative care, the the modern hospice palliative care movement, you know, started in the 70s in the UK, and in its truest form, um, you know, and the truest definition of palliative care would be sort of the alleviation of pain and suffering throughout a person's illness. So, in its truest form palliative care is intended to be uh, delivered alongside other regular curative treatments. Um, but the focus is really to help people live well. And the and the aim is to look at all the ways that a, that a person's illness is impacting on their life, not just the physical symptoms that they're experiencing, but the psychological, the social, the the Um, emotional, spiritual impacts that living with this illness has. And palliative care aims to address those throughout a person's illness, right alongside any other treatments that they're uh, receiving. But oftentimes, um, the way that palliative care is operationalized in in the clinical world is very different. And that is often due to um, limitations with resources and that type of thing. And so We've come to know palliative care or equate palliative care with very end-of-life care, when in fact end-of-life care is a piece of palliative care. End-of-life care is the care that's provided when somebody's in their last hours or days of life, whereas palliative care can and should be delivered right from the time of diagnosis throughout a person's illness to help them live well. So I like to think about it as, you know, palliative care is about helping people live well when they're living with these serious chronic progressive illnesses and end of life care is when we get to that stage where we're then helping people die well. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think if we, you know, if it weren't for some of the limitations that we have with respect to funding and other resources, um, you know, I, I think that we, we would be able to do a better job of actually delivering palliative care as it was intended and in a, in a way that people, that more people would benefit um, again throughout their illness instead of just in those very final days or weeks of their lives.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very different way of approaching palliative care than I think we kind of traditionally understand it. In those situations, let's say if, after diagnosis, can a patient You know, if they kind of know what we're talking about here and have heard this, can a patient initiate those discussions with their doctor um, or will the doctor, you know, because it sounds like the doctor will wait longer than maybe should for palliative care. Is this something patients can advocate for?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing we're trying to change is this notion that Um, you know, palliative care is a very distinct service that's only offered by a specialized team, you know, when we get to this place of switching from a curative approach to a palliative or end-of-life approach. So we would love to see things move to a place where uh, wherever a person is receiving care, whether it be in the hospital, in a long-term care facility, at home, you know, wherever they are, that whoever is involved in their care team Would be delivering a palliative approach to care. So, in other words, addressing all those ways that that illness is impacting them and helping them to live well. Um, And that, you know, so that we can sort of reserve the use of our specialists in palliative care um, to come in and help when things get complex or outside of the scope, sort of a regular uh, plan of care. And I, I think that it needs to become an expectation of people and of societies that they can and will receive palliative care when they are living with a serious illness or diagnosed with a chronic progressive illness. Um, And I think that if um, as a society we come to understand what palliative care can offer and how it can benefit us and we become, we we equate it less with end-of-life care, right? Sometimes people hear the words palliative care and they become very fearful because they equate it with the death service or this means I'm going to die soon. But if we could shift that to a place where people understood uh, that palliative care can benefit them in so many ways um, for months. Some people live with these illnesses for months or years and that palliative care could benefit them throughout that whole time and help them to prepare for the time when they do reach the very end of their life um i think that uh, people would be living better and i think that we would be better prepared to help people die well as well at the end
0: i really love that it's more of a quality of life yeah. approach mm-hmm. and then even in terms from the terms of the medical side more of a holistic mm-hmm. approach from you know the medical team
1: I'll Yes, say it versus
0: yep. like you said now you're in palliative care switch
1: yeah. yeah and for a long time that that's sort of been Uh, The way things have been, where we sort of have this curative, let's do what we can to help you live longer. And when we finally accept that we can't do that, we can't help you live longer, now we'll consult the specialist palliative care team. And oftentimes that's too late and it comes at the very end of life. And so if we could somehow, again, I think this ties back to the notion of how are we defining successful care, you know, and does it need to be either or? why can't we have palliative care delivered right alongside some of these other curative uh, approaches, and we're always reevaluating how this aligns with the person's goals of care. right? And so there might come a point in an illness where there's more emphasis on curative versus palliative, but then there might get to a point where we shift the focus so there's more emphasis on the palliative versus the curative. Um, But I think we need to get to a place where We are expecting this of our healthcare system. We're expecting that this type of care and that this care will be available to us uh, when we need it. Man, I really
0: love what you're presenting here, that change in focus. I think that could have huge uh, positive implications for people living with illnesses. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, even in terms of mental health, in terms of like, you know, that switch, oh, now you're on palliative, That's, that's gotta be, you know, even. Challenging from the mental health point of things, but mm-hmm. when it's just kind of more this continuum of mm-hmm. care from diagnosis on, I just think that's that's a really great way, really great way to approach it. Um, another port- important piece of this is the role of caregivers, and this is in family caregivers, mm-hmm. and this is an area you are passionate about. So, and I know this personally, because I've known you for years and you've talked about this for years. Um, so... Even if we personally are not dealing with a diagnosis or caring for someone with one, chances are we all know someone who is. So why is it important that we support family caregivers? And maybe you can just talk about family caregiving. And by family, I mean it could be a friend as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But why is this so important? Yeah, why is this area so important to you? Why are you passionate about it? What should we know and what should we do?
1: Mm-hmm. How much time do we have? Oh boy! Because I can talk with this for a long time.
0: <laughs> I'll cut you off. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: uh, you know, I think um, when we're talking about people who are living with a serious illness, um, you know, our minds automatically go to the person who's living with that illness, and I think that we need to be mindful of the fact that there are people walking alongside these individuals. And family caregivers, like you said, it doesn't need to be biological kin, it can be friends, neighbors, um, play a really, really important role in supporting these individuals who are living uh, with a chronic progressive illness. And when these people are living at home, family caregivers are providing upwards of 90% of the care that these people receive. And so You know, oftentimes when we think about family caregivers, we think about all the ways that they're providing care, which is very, very important. And they're having to learn all kinds of new information and new skills in order to provide this care, which can be overwhelming for them, can be somewhat stressful for them. But in addition to all the things that they're doing to provide care um, and, you know, coordinating appointments, helping in decision-making, which is part of what we've talked about today, um, they're also having their own emotional responses to the fact that somebody they care about is living with this serious illness and all the losses that come along with that. And so, I think it's really important that um, that we find ways to better support caregivers because, you know, when, care, when caregivers perceive that they don't have the uh, supports or the resources that they need. Um, to face sort of the challenges that come along in this caregiving experience, that's when we see them starting to have some of these negative health outcomes. So we know caregivers, you know, have high levels of fatigue. There's high levels of anxiety and depression. They're often feeling very overwhelmed. Um, But when supports are in place, we might not, you know, take away all the stress or all the stressors that are involved with caregiving but we can turn that stress into a more positive stress where it helps caregivers thrive in their role. So that support's really important so that caregivers um, are able to continue providing care and providing this uh, tremendous amount of support that they do for the person who's living with the illness, but also so that their own health and well-being um, is maintained and, that, and they're not becoming sick and becoming patients themselves.
0: It was interesting. Um, in the work I do, we want to restore the value of life in our culture, essentially. Mm -hmm. So we look for things to do that um, yeah, support a culture of life. So I met with a CEO of a large company recently to talk about um, just some different things from the HR perspective of what companies could do to support women, to support families. And he said it's interesting. He's noticed that on his management team, his managers aren't asking for time off because You know their wives have had babies or they need to deal with a sick child they've noticed their management team needs time off to care for parents bring parents to appointments um, do this caregiving role and he said that is something new uh, that he's come across where now there's more uh, pressure and stress as his management team gets older to be those caregivers for parents I'm just wondering if you could speak to that in terms of the role our society, like businesses, for example, can even play in supporting a culture where we take care of our aging, take care of our ill versus just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, leaving that responsibility up to the medical
1: system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think traditionally uh, the support of caregivers uh, has been seen as something that's sort of taken care of through the healthcare system because this is where... Um, caregivers uh, largely intersect with healthcare providers when they're walking alongside the person who is sick right and so we associate that caregiving role with the illness and where that's taking place is in the healthcare system so they'll support the caregiver but in reality caregivers are providing most of this care at home and in the communities that they live they're trying to maintain and juggle jobs or parenting Um, you know, other responsibilities that they have with their caregiving responsibilities, and their needs are multifaceted. So yes, they have needs uh, related to uh, knowing how to provide medical care and support to the person who's ill, but they also have needs, like I said, coping with their own emotional responses to the illness and and the losses that are occurring there. Um, They have needs in relation to Balancing work and other responsibilities. They have uh, financial stressors um, that are associated with caregiving, lots of out of pocket expenses that occur, plus sometimes the loss of the income for the person who's ill. Right? So the needs that caregivers have are really broad. There's a wide range of needs. And I think it really takes a village of people uh, to support caregivers. And, you know, I think we need to. Uh, become much more aware as a community um, that there are caregivers all around us and that these caregivers have um, a lot of needs that can uh, easily or readily be met um, by workplaces, by churches, by nonprofit organizations, by neighbors and friends. All of us who cross paths with caregivers can play a role in meeting some of those needs that caregivers have because Um, They are so wide-ranging.
0: I've met with a few caregivers recently, and, you know, they've said to me they really just, part of it is they just want to talk about it and just vent. But not that many people actually are aware what they're going through. And I asked why that is, and most of them say, like, they want to protect the privacy of their parents. They want to protect you know the privacy of their spouse or they you know like there's this protection over the people they're taking care with um, the person they're taking care of i should say so they're actually not that vocal so to a certain degree the onus is on us the onus is on us to observe and if we we know somebody's been diagnosed we we can assume that the person taking care of them needs some support versus just waiting to be asked because that will likely never happen or the caretaker likely will never say how hard things are or what they're going through um yeah because they want to protect their loved one Mm -hmm. so I think just even things like taking somebody out for lunch dropping off a meal bringing someone to an appointment those types of things are real tangible ways that we can
1: support caregivers yeah yeah absolutely and I think you're right, I think part of it is about, uh, you know, uh, protecting the the privacy of the person, the care recipient, the person they're caring for. Part of it is also, you know, we know that caregivers are notorious for putting the needs of the care recipient before their own. So, you know, they're often so busy with sort of making sure everything's in order with their caregiving responsibilities that their needs come come last. And by the time there's time for that, um, either they, they can't find the time or they don't have the energy to engage in things that, that they need to sort of fill up their own cup, right. Um, but certainly, I think there's some very uh, simple and practical things that all of us can do. Um, one of the I have found one of the most powerful things uh, that, that we can do to show support to somebody who's in a caregiver role, is to acknowledge acknowledge the care recipient acknowledge you know what's going on in the caregiving experience but then to ask and how are you and how are you today right sometimes being uh, so specific because we also know that you know caregiving our experiences with caregiving fluctuate from day to day some days are harder than others right and so to simply ask somebody how are you doing today or how is today going for you and you know, they may want to talk about it, they may not, that's okay, but what it does is it it opens or it invites them to a conversation and it lets them know that you are good to talk about that if and when they ever want to.
0: That's great, great advice. So in closing, when we think about people who are living with serious illness or the people who are taking care of them, are there ways we can advocate for them um, or for loved
1: ones in these situations? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And and I, I personally think that, um, you know, one of the things that we really need to start doing uh, better or that we can just start with is simply having conversations and not being afraid to engage in conversations about, um, you know, living with illness, death and dying, um, you know, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly about caregiving, all of those things that are typically these, these hard parts of life that we like to avoid, right? So if we start having these conversations, and it doesn't have to be a formal sit-down conversation with your family, you know, it can be very informal conversation in your day-to-day. You hear of somebody who is living with an illness and you say, you know, I wonder what that might be like have you ever thought about what it'd be like if, you know, you were diagnosed with cancer or, you know, have you thought about what kind of treatments, you know, you might accept or not accept those types of things. And so it can be, you know, snippets of conversation that happen in our day to day that really, again, just open that conversation and let people know that we're willing to talk about these hard things. Right. Um, I always tell my students in class you know, if you have a question, chances are other people have that same question. And so sometimes we avoid talking about these things because it's hard to talk about things that, that we have some fears around or that type of thing. But chances are if we're thinking about things or have fears about certain things, the other people around us do too. And so if we can sort of broach that in a way that opens that conversation and lets people know that we're open to talking about it, suddenly it becomes a little bit... Uh, more of a normal part of our, of our conversations. Right. And so, um, I think, yeah, I think one of the things we can do is, um, as again, start to, start to talk about these things with our families and our friends and our churches and our social circles. Um, but also, you know, if and when we are diagnosed with something or we're supporting somebody and we're in that caregiver role and supporting somebody who has been diagnosed with an illness, um, Ask questions of the healthcare team, right? And I think that, you know, when you're faced with this situation, everything is new and there's a lot coming at you at once. But I think that um, it's really, really important. We're going to be making decisions along the way throughout the whole journey. There's constantly going to be decisions that we're making. And every time we're faced with a decision, you know, if we ask the question, okay, this is the treatment that's in front of us. So it's one thing, we usually talk about, okay, what will this do for how much time I have left, right? But an equally important question is, what will it be like to live with that treatment? What will the side effects of that treatment be? What will my day-to-day look like? Because that will impact not only the person who's living with receiving that treatment, but their caregiver and what their day looks like and what their life looks like, And by doing this, and if you've already had these conversations with your family about the things that are important to you, is it very important to you that you remain independent? Is it very important to you that um, you are completely pain-free or could you tolerate a little bit of pain if it allows you to be mobile and get out and travel or do whatever it is? You know, it doesn't have to be those big ticket decisions around do I want to be on a ventilator or not? Do I want tube feeding or not? It can be what are the things that make my life meaningful? What, what gives me quality in my life? Then when we're faced with those decisions and we have a better understanding about not only will this treatment, um, what does it mean with respect to adding time to my life, but what will my life look like as far as side effects and what will the quality of my life be? We can then have a much more informed approach to deciding whether that aligns with what's important to us and how we want to live. Right. And so that helps the person living with the illness. It also helps the caregiver who's supporting them um, and aiding in some of those decision making processes, too. Um, So I think, you know, it's also important to remember that these kinds of conversations are ongoing and things change over time. And so to not be afraid to have these conversations time and time again as things change and, and be open to how things might change with time. Jamie, thank you
0: so much for being here today. This is just an incredibly important topic, and I don't think it's one we talk about enough. So I hope this will um, get people pause to think about it and start talking about it. Um, that is hugely important. Um, also, if you're a caregiver, I just want to let you know that Life Culture offers two caregiver support groups that meet the third week of every month. Jamie actually leads one that meets on the Wednesday, the third Wednesday of every month. And that is for people who take care of adult children, spouses, aging parents, that type of thing. So if that would be a benefit to you, please visit caretogether.ca where you can find out more information about that. And thank you for listening. As I mentioned earlier, two excellent books on this topic are Being Mortal and When Breath Becomes Air, and I highly recommend reading them. See you next time.